going to read scripture uh, that'll set up the message for this morning. Jesus, thank you that you are present, that you are with us. Um, thank you for this season right now that we are in, um, that we call Lent, that prepares our hearts for Good Friday, where you were crucified, and for your resurrection at Easter. And as we go through this journey, as we hear the word this morning, on this next step of our journey of Lent, this journey to the cross, um, we open our hearts to you. And Jesus, we ask that you would tune our hearts to what you have for each of us this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning, scriptures from Mark 8, verse 31 through 35. And Jesus began to tell them that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and then be killed. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this thing must never happen to you. Then Jesus summoned the crowd and with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Thank you, Doug. Um, first of all, it has been a joy to be among you. I'm glad it's not over. This is the last Sunday, but um, to be with the men next uh, weekend, I'm really looking forward to that. I hope you guys are too, and the Beatitudes finishing up on Wednesday. It's just a rare thing that I've been able to do this. I think some of you know the story. At, on November 25th this last uh, year, just a few months ago, it was my last day to, to, that marked 38 years to the day of me being senior pastor at Open Door. And so when Doug and I talked about coming here, my first reaction was, no, of course, I can't do that because I'm busy. And um, it turns out I'm not. <laughs> anyway, no longer an Open Door, but as a sent one. I mean, literally, Open Door, you need maybe to hear this. I, maybe you don't. Um, but I'm here kind of on purpose. Um, we're staying tethered to my home church, our home church, and their intention with me is to very much be about intentionally sending me to places like this, allowing this kind of thing to happen, and we're just really grateful for all that it means uh, to you and to us as well. A couple of weeks ago, on what was the first weekend of Lent, I concluded that talk with these words from the prophet Jeremiah, speaking on behalf of God to the people of God, words that reveal the heart of God for his people and the intimate nature of his love for them and for us when he says, Jeremiah 2, verse 2, I remember concerning you. The devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothal, and how you followed after me in the wilderness through a land not sown full of thistles and a path uncleared. But it didn't matter that the path was uncleared or full of thistles because your love was fresh and even a bit naive, but you would have gone anywhere to be with me. You would have done anything to follow me. So I remember concerning you, says God through the prophet to the people of God, do you remember me? So remember me, um, says God through the prophet Joel. That was another text we had. Because if you, and if you do remember me and return to me with all your heart, 
um, there will be restoration. And so a couple weeks ago, on what was the first Sunday of Lent, we identified that as being the very first step of Lent, um, of this 40-day journey with Jesus toward the cross. And I called it a rhythm, kind of actually a season that we are going to be sitting in together as a people, because part of the story that is the story of God and the people of God is this, that the people of God forget. Just like you do and just like I do, for a variety of reasons and a variety of ways, the people of God all through the scriptures would continue to forget. And what they would forget would be, among other things, who they were and whose they were and why they were here as a people, which is why the consistent call from God to the people of God in the word of God, literally from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, from Genesis chapter 1 all through the Revelation, has been repeatedly from God to his people, and it includes now us, remember me and return now to me. And every time the people of God did remember and return, they'd be revived. And when they were revived, they would remember who they were and whose they were and why they were here. And all of that is at least part of why. On the very, first, uh, uh, the very first step of this 40-day 40, uh, 40 journey we call Lent, with Jesus toward the cross, is to remember. But now today, we're kind of taking a turn, as it were. Um, having stepped into all of that remembering stuff for the last couple of weeks, we're moving now to the second step of the journey. Third week of Lent, second step of the journey, which calls us beyond just remember me to I want you now to follow me. Step one, remember me and return to me. Step two, I want you now to follow me, and that is another step. Indeed, it's a really big step um, that will actually bring us more deeply into the story of God that is bringing us now with Jesus toward the cross, because having remembered and then returned to me, I now want you to follow me to take up your cross and follow me. Doug just read the text, Mark 8:34. Um, saying this, that if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Follow me into a different kind of life. Follow me into a life that actually in, seems to involve, according to the text that Doug just read, a kind of death, and a life that involves some kind of death, denying yourself kind of thing, just sounds delightful, doesn't it? <laughs> no, it doesn't sound Delightful. I mean, seriously, how to get people to sign up for stuff like this? Forfeit your life. All that language, suffering and death, that's all around Lent. This talk of losing your life, forfeiting your soul, denying yourself, taking up your cross. Who would buy in to that? Um, good question, I think. So to try to get some perspective around this, let me remind you of something that a couple of weeks ago I tried to explain when I was trying to explain the nature of Lent as we were entering into it by comparing it and contrasting it, ironically, to the nature of Advent. Advent, remember, is that season we enter into as a church four weeks preceding Christmas. Lent now is the six weeks we enter into as a people anticipating the cross and the suffering and the resurrection of Christ. And part of the contrast between Advent and Lent is this. That while both of these experiences, Advent and Lent, are invitations into a journey, and while both of the journeys are designed to prepare us for something, during Advent, what we're preparing for is the coming of Christ. So what we're preparing for is the birth of a baby, of Christ, as it were. But during Lent, we're preparing for, it's a waiting season, and it's a preparation season, but we're preparing for a very different thing, not something to be born. We're preparing for something to, whoa, die. 
We're preparing for the suffering of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ. And while both of these seasons, Advent and Lent, simply by virtue of their length, are marked by this season of waiting, um, the energy and the imagery of the waiting in these two seasons is actually quite different. Think about it, because during Advent, as you're anticipating Christmas, the energy and the imagery is that we're waiting for something to be born. And while the process of giving birth, some of you can give testimony to this, uh, can be very frightening and very painful, uh, and the birth pangs of actually giving birth can feel like something's going to die. I think I'm going to die. I think you might have thought that when you gave birth to children, if you have. Um, the actual imagery and energy of Advent is not that something's about to die, but even the pain you're in is telling you something is about to be born, so that's a different kind of energy. Indeed, even the language of Lent is filled with great joy and high expectations, for I bring you good news of what? Great joy, said the angel to the shepherds in Luke chapter 1, and then to Mary, the angel said, this will be great, Luke chapter 1, verse 32, even his name will be great, called the Son of the Most High God. So this whole thing, says the angel to Mary, is going to be great. So even if it's scary and it's a little bit painful, this is going to be great. Something really good is happening. A baby's about to be born. But as most of you know, I think, the energy and imagery of Lent is entirely different, including the language of Lent. Because it's not good news of great joy that's being declared. There is no angel appearing to say, this is going to be great. His name will be great. It's all going to be great. There's no angel saying that around Lent in the season we're in right now. Because the language of Lent has all this talk that you heard from Doug just a minute ago about losing your life and forfeiting your soul and denying yourself and taking up a cross. Indeed, Jesus himself sets the tone in this text for the day, Mark 8, 31, when in his preparing his disciples, and that is the backdrop of this. He's trying to explain to his disciples why it's necessary for him to suffer and die. He says this, that I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and then be killed, which doesn't sound that great, right? Um, like, this will be great. No, it won't. Indeed, Lent actually sounds like a horrible season, the way I'm setting it up here right now, but all of that is, I think, also what's behind what Peter says. In verse 32, you heard it a moment ago from Doug again, when Peter says, having heard, I must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, Peter says, God forbid it, Lord. This thing must never happen to you, which means, at least according to Peter, that this plan that Jesus has laid out for them is not so great. I don't like this plan, clearly, is what Peter is Saying to which Jesus says to Peter, in effect, my paraphrase, Peter, not only will this happen, I will go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, but it must happen. I must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and even be killed, but then after three days, be raised. And then in John chapter 12, which adds to the picture here that I'm painting, he explains why he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and actually be killed. And he explains it in his predictably rabbinic style, cryptic rabbinic style, here's why. I have to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and even die. Because unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. It remains by itself uh, useless. It's without effect. But if it dies, if the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, boom, it bears much fruit. 
It produces seeds. It brings, it, it comes to life. And at one level, um, he's talking about himself, obviously. Um, and what's about to happen to him about his own death and resurrection, because in order, for, in, in order to rise from the dead, you have to die first. I even get that, uh, which makes dying necessary. I must go to Jerusalem, except for many things, because if, you can't rise from the dead unless you're dead. But he's talking about more than that. And this is, so everything I've said so far, I think you get. This is kind of a stretch for me when I first started dialing into this. He's talking about more than his physical death and resurrection, and more than his physical death and resurrection, which... We get a hint of in verse 26 of John 12, where he cryptically again says that the one who serves me must actually follow me. As if to say, this dying to live thing, because unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it comes to life. But the one who follows me, serves me, must follow me. It's as if he's saying this dying to live thing doesn't just apply to me. I will die and rise again. It applies in some ways to you as well, Peter. There's something about this going to Jerusalem thing. There's something about church, you need to understand this, this way of the cross thing that you don't want me to go to. God forbid it, Lord, said Peter, that I'm calling you to go to, actually, for if anyone wishes to come after me, um, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me there into this kind of journey, into this kind of pattern of dying in order to live, a pattern of losing your life in order to find it for whoever wishes to save his life, verse 35, must lose it. And he who loses his life will surely find it, <sighs> which just sounds so weird, <laughs> doesn't it? You know, a preacher, 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 this is great, this is great. This, this is weird. How would you lose your life and find it and find your life and lose it? And it just sounds like circular thinking. It's just not so great. Any of this. So here's the question: Why? Why is it true that you find your life by losing your life? Why is it true that unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone? But if it dies, it comes to life. So the secret to coming to life is somehow having things die. So why is that true? And how does it work? Other two questions. Well, here's how and here's why. And by the way, the answer here is not him trying to sell them, and I'm not trying to sell you either, because the answer here um, is actually Jesus saying, okay, whether you understand it or not or like it or not, this is just the way life works. It's just the way life works, because here's how it works. Um, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it's useless. It has no effect. The only way for it to come to life is if it dies, it's just the way it is. Not just in the kingdom of God, it's actually the way it is in life. I'll explain that later. Um, And all that means, among other things, this. That the invitation of Lent and the message of the cross is not just that Jesus died on the cross so we wouldn't have to. Um, I kind of grew up hearing that. I was really grateful he died on the cross because dying on the cross would, like, that would hurt a lot. But wait, 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 it does include a gratitude that he did what I could never do because he died and rose again the way he did. But the message of the cross is not just that he died so we wouldn't have to, but that he died on the cross and rose from the dead to demonstrate once and for all that this is actually how people come to life every day, not by grasping what they think they have to have, but by releasing 
Not by gaining, but by losing their life will you find it. Not by ascending, but by, oh boy, descending you find greatness. Indeed, the Apostle Paul said it this way. He's speaking of Jesus, and the preface to this is this in Philippians chapter 3. Have this attitude in you, beloved, that was also in Christ, who set the pattern for us, Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, regarded equality with God, not a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. That's the journey of descent. Not a descent, not ascent, but the journey of descent. He emptied himself and he humbled himself, taking on the form of a slave, becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And out of this descent, he humbled himself, becoming a man, obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. Now you're on the ascent. He descended. That's the journey of descent. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is why on this third Sunday of Lent, the message, the invitation is this, in the words of Brennan Manning, that I will never forget. Um, I mean, picture Easter coming and Jesus being on the cross, the words from him would be this year, um, you know, church, this year, I, I don't want you to just cheer for me. Um, I'd actually like, because thank you for doing that, that's a good thing, but I actually am asking my church, my people, to join me, um, to follow me into this universal pattern that is woven into the fabric of life in the kingdom of God, and the pattern is this, that life springs forth from death, and that coming to life in the kingdom of God almost always involves a kind of dying first, a, a kind of, 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 of letting go, uh, sometimes, of, sometimes of life itself. We're going to die, and, and you can fight it all you want, but one day you're going to have to let go of that. But sometimes, at a more practical level, because you're only going to do that once, that die thing, but all along the way, there are places where we need to let go of things like, I don't know, maybe control or what people think um, or the need to be right or to win or to look good. And I'm going to promise you something. This is why it's universal. I mean, I might have lost you in some of the leading up to this thing right here with some theological weirdness. Um, but here's the deal. Every time you let go of anything... Um, you think you're going to die. If you have control issues and you let go of control, when you let go of control, you think you're going to die. Uh, when you let go of what people think, Whew. if I let go of that, what will protect me? You think you're going to die, but here's the deal. You don't indeed. Something will come to life, and uh, we actually know this is true. Uh, you know it's true. You've experienced it, I think, um, in a variety of ways. Um, have you ever said you're sorry? Never had to say you're sorry. Because that thing you were so sure of, you were right about, you found out to your horror you were wrong. <laughs> and now I have to say, I'm sorry. Now, it's a little thing. Sometimes it's a big thing. But for you to admit that what, the direction I was going, I was so sure about it, and well, I was wrong. I got to go back and go, I'm really sorry. When you got to say that kind of thing, feels like you're going to die. But if you do it, if you repent, you turn, you don't die. You feel like you're going to die, but you don't die. Something comes to life. 
You ever forgiven someone that um, really wronged you and wounded you? Um, man, oh man, to release someone. Uh, to forfeit the right to punish someone, to let go of that offense, to let go of the anger and the protection that that anger gives to you. I'm telling you, you let go of that anger that so protects you, promise you, you're, you it's, it feels like you're going to die when you let go of that. But in the dying, in the letting go, in the letting them off the hook, um, Comes to life. Something comes to life. You ever take a stand? When everybody was going this way and you just knew it was wrong and you just took a stand, I'm not going that way. Have you ever taken a stand for something? Have you ever taken a stand against something because it was right or because it was wrong? But if you do take this stand, you might lose a friend. Or if you do take this stand, you might lose a job or maybe lose your church. Promise you that thing feels like you're going to die. But when you take the stand, because it was the right thing to do, though it feels like you're going to die, might keep you up at night for a few days, weeks. Something comes to life. I remember years ago, my wife and I, Bonnie, went into counseling. Um, just some things at church had kind of exploded, and they were overwhelming us, and I went in to see if I could stay in the ministry, and the um, counselor at one point in the process, said, you know, you should really bring your wife in sometime, and I'd like to hear her perspective, which delighted me, because I thought if we could fix her, that would be great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but it ended up being a season of repentance for me, as I was listening to the therapist, who was very gracious, but also very in my face, and wasn't afraid to kind of give to me um, what he saw in me, and there were things that he said to me that I if I, if, oh boy, if I let that in, that that's actually how I treat my wife, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to die. I can't say that, that that's really what I've done. But I didn't die. Because every time I said, no, yes, you're right, you're right, I did. Um, I did say that, and it was to control. And, but when I thought I was going to die, but it didn't die. Something came to life, like our marriage. I mean, this is universal. Um, Ernest Becker, in his book, the denial of death says, if anyone tells you that you can be born again, enlightened, saved, and going to heaven, and does not speak to you very honestly about dying, do not believe that person. There is no renewal in all of nature without preceding loss. Even the food we eat, I like this, even the food we eat has to die before it can give us life. You killed a cow. Anyway, like, right? Okay, weird. I relate to things that are gross like that. Point is this. Point is this. It's universal. This, this is woven into the... This is not some religious talk today. This is woven into the universe, actually. Ironic, then, isn't it, that a message so subversive, uh, universally true is so universally disbelieved, even by those of us who say we believe it. Richard Rohr, one of my favorite authors, calls it amazing what I just said, that the cross or the crucifix, it's amazing, he says, that the cross or the crucifix ever became the central Christian symbol when its rather obvious message is so aggressively disbelieved, he says, by most Christian countries, individuals, and churches, because we are clearly into assent 
as churches, as a country. I want more. I'm going to be bigger on that stuff. We are clearly into achievement and accumulation. If you don't believe that, go to a Christian bookstore, he says, and notice the bestsellers. They're all about ascent. Your best life now. Now. Great. The cross has become a mere totem, he says, a piece of jewelry. We made Jesus the symbol um, we made the Jesus symbol into a mechanical and distant substitutionary atonement theory instead of a very personal and intense at-one-ment process. It became something Jesus did for us instead of something that revealed and then invited us into the same pattern, a pattern that says that the only way to gain your life is to give your life away. And if anyone wishes to come after me, they must first of all quit cheering for me um, and actually begin to follow me into this kind of living. Which brings us back to Mark 8, 34, which says this, that if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up their cross. He must deny himself. Which, much like taking up your cross, um, <laughs> doesn't sound that great. It's just not that great. It doesn't feel like Advent at all. Indeed, um, it sounds like an invitation to a horribly restrictive life. Deny yourself. How many of you grew up hearing this verse? I'm a pastor's kid. Heard this verse my whole life. I'm, I'm being invited to deny myself means I'm invited into a horribly restrictive life full of no. Just say no, primarily to yourself. Okay? <laughs> so, here's how it works. Would you like something? No. <laughs> You want to enjoy yourself? No. Uh, you want to live a life of passion? No. You want to ever go to church again, ever in your life? No. <laughs> I want to get away from this message here to tell you the truth. Um, so let me tell you what it doesn't mean, because it doesn't mean any of the stuff that I just said. Let me tell you what you're not doing when you're denying yourself, because you're not saying no to all pleasurable experiences, as if anything pleasurable must be sinful and therefore avoided, and it doesn't mean that you should do things for God that you absolutely hate. In fact, the more I hate doing this, the more you know, points I'm somehow getting. Oh, boy. It doesn't mean you should do things for God that you absolutely hate, because you think that's what it means to deny yourself, and if you really love baseball, or if you really love hockey, or art, or music, better not do that. You should deny yourself. And it doesn't mean that you should somehow become less human. Deny yourself. Does not mean deny your feelings, become unemotional, unfeeling, unexcited, avoid all ups and downs, eat only bland food, wear only beige. I mean, we'd be Lutherans. I mean, that's pretty crazy time. <laughs> that really sells in Minnesota, that little joke there. Fact is, and this is where this whole talk turns, actually, and I'm near the end, so it took a long time to turn this where I wanted it to go. Um, to really understand, Jesus called a self-denial. We need to understand it in the context of a paradigm that actually finds its roots, not in denial, but in desire. Hang with me. The paradigm is provided that I'm suggesting in Matthew 13, verse 44, where Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. 
I know you've heard this passage before and the effect that the kingdom of God has on the human heart. And as he often does, he does his teaching with a story designed to ignite the imagination. And so Jesus says in verse 44 of Matthew 13, to what can I compare the kingdom of heaven? Let me see. To what can I compare the kingdom of heaven? I know it's like a treasure hidden in a field that this guy finds. And for the joy over what he has discovered, he goes and sells everything he has to buy the field. And then Jesus thinks of another one right after that in verse 45, because the kingdom of heaven is also like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And when he finds the one pearl of great value, he goes and sells everything he has to get that one pearl. And the first thing I want you to see in those two little stories there. Um, is this, that when Jesus tells a story, I love this, when Jesus tells a story about the kingdom of God, um, he doesn't kick into abstract theological propositions about eschatological theory. He tells a story about buried treasure. Don't you love that? I'm going to teach you deep things of God, and I'm going to do it by talking about buried (laughs) treasure. Um, And that's not about denial. Um, as in deny yourself, it's about desire. Buried treasure is about desire. So to what can I compare the kingdom of heaven? Think, think really hard. But if you're going to come up with a parable of your own, whatever it is that you are going to compare to the kingdom of heaven, you have to think of something that stimulates desire, deep desire. And actually, when I think about that, I come up with a story really quick. It's one of my favorite stories because when I was in college, 40, 50 was it 90 years ago? Something like that. Um, I loved a girl. Uh, her name was Bonnie. Um, she lived in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago, but I was now going to school in Minneapolis at Bethel College at the time. And uh, 400 miles away was she from me. I had no money, no car, no sense at all. But I wanted to see her. Let me tell you why. Because she was like a treasure, a pearl of great price. She's sitting right over here. So I decided, I had to get home, so I decided, I didn't have a car, I didn't have any money, I decided to hitchhike from Minneapolis to Chicago, 400 miles, set out at 6 o'clock in the evening, brilliant, Um, (laughs) a friend of mine brought me out to Hudson, Wisconsin, which is just kind of outside, just across the border from Minneapolis or Minnesota into Wisconsin, from there I got a ride uh, hitchhiking to Eau Claire, from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I got a ride to Milwaukee with a chain smoker, middle of the night, um, who wouldn't open the windows. <coughs> anyway, from there, Milwaukee, I got a ride to Chicago. From there, I took a bus, a CTA bus, Chicago Transit, blah, blah, anyway, to our home in Chicago. Um, and the point is this, and the reason is this, because I would have done anything <laughs> um, to see her that weekend. So to what can I compare the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's like a stupid kid so sick in love that he would risk his very life <laughs> Uh, to see, truth is, um, I heard this guy was moving in on her, and I needed to protect my investment, so I hitchhiked home. <laughs> so that's what the real truth. But it's a good story, right? <laughs> Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Um, <laughs> selling everything you have is the den- deny yourself. Selling everything you have, risking my life to go to Chicago, is the self-denial part. But that's self-denial, when I sell everything I have. When I go to Chicago, hey, check, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
that is not rooted in denial. That whole thing of denying myself comfort all night long um, is rooted in desire, selling everything I have for this treasure. <gasps> Who cares about that? I want this. That's about desire. hundred years ago, Brendan Manning says this, that people didn't talk about being saved, not that that was a bad thing or a good thing, but th th their language was more about um, being seized by the power of great affection. Are you saved? Are you saved? No, they would say, I, I was seized by the power of a great affection that speaks to desire, great affection, and that great affection, that's the, that's the treasure. <laughs> the great affection is the treasure hidden in a field. That's the pearl of great price for which the Apostle Paul says, I would suffer the loss of all things, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, and to let go of whatever thing I'm feeding myself on to get life that doesn't give life. Dallas Willard on self-denial says that the self-denial that Jesus speaks of is always the surrender of a lesser, dying, petty, futile thing for an, in, for an infinitely greater, eternal thing. But our problem, says C.S. Lewis, is that we are too easily pleased, satisfied with playing in mud puddles when, so that we can't even conceive of what is meant by a holiday at sea. Oh, I'd just rather have this, but if you could be seized by the power of a great affection, what a holiday at sea would look like, I would leave this. That's the denial part, but it's rooted in desire. I want more. God. Which brings me to the question with which we'll close on this the third week of Lent. What, there, what might there be in you, in me, in all of us um, that might need to be let go of, that might need to die in some way so that you and me and all of us could come to life more and more and more. Because I'm telling you the truth. It's just the way it is. <laughs> Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone, it, it, without effect. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It produces many seeds. It comes to life. I want you to stand as we close, and I'm going to ask the band to come as we sing one final song, and I want to just pray a prayer over you um, as they come and we close. It's a prayer written by Ted uh, Loader. He says this, Lord, hold us, Hope Covenant Church, hold Hope Covenant Church on this Lenten journey. Hold our feet to the fire of your grace. Make us aware of our frailty that we may begin to die now to those things that keep us from being fully alive, those things that keep us from living with you and with each other, to grudges and indifference, certainties that smother possibilities, to our fascination with false securities, to our arrogant insistence on how it has to be Lord, hold us in this Lenten season, on this Lenten journey. Hold our heart to the beat of your grace. 
and create in us a resting place, a kneeling place. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.